You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. Our text today comes from John's Gospel, chapter 10. And for those of you who like to know the reference completely, it's John, it's John 10, verses 33 through 39. It reads this way. The Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus replied, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these are you going to stone me? The Jews answered, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, though only a human being, are making yourself God. Jesus answered, is it not written in your law, meaning your scriptures? I said you are gods. If to those to whom the word of God came were called gods, and the scriptures cannot be annulled, can you say that the one whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world is blaspheming because I said I am God's son? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Then they tried to arrest him again, but he escaped from their hands. All right, there's the text. I think it probably surprises a lot of Christians uh, that Jesus said, we are gods. And he says it in the context of his critics coming to him and charging him with blasphemy and heresy. They're getting ready to kill him, stone him, which is a horrible way to die. They're getting ready to kill him and stone him for making himself out to be God. Let's read that part again. His critics say, it's not for your good works, it's not for the good things that you're up to that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, though only a human being, are making yourself out to be God. And I love Jesus's response. Is it not written in your own scriptures, I said you are gods? If to those whom the word of God was given were called gods, how can you say that the one to whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world is blaspheming because because I said I am God's son? When Jesus says to them, your own scriptures say you are gods, he's talking about specifically Psalm 82, verse 6, which says this. I say you are gods, children of the Most High, all of you. And so Jesus's point is basically, why are you accusing me of heresy and blasphemy when your own scriptures, which you exalt and revere, tell you? That you too are gods, not just me. We all get to be gods together. You're you're gods too. What's up with this, yo? I had the yo part. 
But I mean, that's basically what he's saying. Well, why are you so angry? Are you accusing me of blasphemy and heresy? And you're getting ready to kill me for it? When your own scriptures call you gods, we all, we all get to be gods together. Again, I don't think a lot of Christians are aware that Jesus says this or that the Psalms say this. And I bring this up today because we're in this series on mysticism here at Central right now. We're, we're in this series where we're trying to uncover, rediscover the mystical core, the mystical roots within Christianity, and particularly within our scriptures, the Bible. This is a perfect text for that. Mysticism, as I've said in weeks prior, is basically defined give you a quick definition. It's basically about this idea of oneness. Mysticism, whether we're talking about Christian mysticism, Islamic mysticism, Buddhist mysticism, shamanic or indigenous understandings of mysticism. Mysticism in general is about this idea of a mysterious oneness that exists between us and God, that we are somehow one with the divine. It's about, it's about exploring that. This idea of oneness and connection to ultimate reality or, or God, the one, the source, however you define God. That's what mysticism is about, primarily, oneness with God. But if someone says in our Western Christian context, I am God, we generally react with concern, right? I mean, we generally feel like that's probably not a good thing to say. We react negatively. It sounds so narcissistic to us. It sounds kind of insane, right? We, A lot of people who say, I'm God, suffer from psychosis or schizophrenia or some kind of delusional disorder. That's how we generally react to this idea. But in Eastern religions, particularly Hinduism, if someone says, I'm God, a Hindu person might react, well, congratulations. Welcome to the club. It's great that you finally discovered your true divine nature like the rest of us. There isn't this sense of this person is on a power trip or an ego trip or is delusional. Not like in a Christian Western context. Notice the difference between the Hindu and the Christian reaction. Hindus and Eastern religions don't take it as a power trip. They take it to mean that you are at one with the absolute or with Brahman in the Hindu tradition, this word for ultimate reality, the, the spirit, the consciousness that undergirds all of reality. In, in those Eastern religions, they take it as a sign of enlightenment to say, I am God or God and I are one. Whereas Christians tend to take it as a sign of insanity or narcissism, heresy, blasphemy, and the ultimate power trip. But when I so when, when I speak of God and when, when Jesus speaks of God in our text here, I think he means it more in the Hindu sense, so to speak. He means it in the Jewish sense, of course. He was a Jew. Which is... Again, this idea of oneness, this idea that we are at one with God. And this is in line with what Jesus says elsewhere in John's gospel. Like in chapter 14, where he says, for I am in the Father, 
and you are in me, and I am in you. That's John 14. Do you hear the, the circular universalist kind of understanding or, or wordage there? I am in the Father, Jesus says, and you are in me, and I am in you, and we are all one. And John's Jesus in particular has this very circular universalist understanding of our divinity as opposed to the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John's Jesus is very, very mystical in this regard. He is all about you know, his own divinity and our divinity and his connection to the Father and our connection to him and the Father. It's all just one big connection and mystical scenario. That's John's Jesus. And this is where Richard Rohr, how many of you know who Richard Rohr is? Yeah, all right, good. This is where Richard Rohr, that famous Catholic Franciscan mystic, he's, he's alive still. This is where he gets this idea of what he calls the universal Christ, which is a title of a book he published a few years back, which is worth reading. The universal Christ is this understanding that Christ was not Jesus's last name. Jesus's whole name is not Jesus H. Christ, no matter what you've heard on television. What does the H stand for, by the way? Horace, Herbert, I don't but Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title. It's a title, and it means simply the anointed one or the embodiment of God's spirit. This means that there is something universal and recurrent. There's something recursive about Christ that is recursive in history and, and in us. In fact, the name Christian, the etymology of the word Christian, the name Christian literally means little Christ. I don't think a lot of Christians know that. When a Christian calls themselves a Christian, a lot of Christians don't understand. They are actually calling, them, calling themselves little Christs, that they are Christ. Christ, therefore, isn't so much an individual who lived 2,000 years ago. He's not so much an individual, but an icon. Not so much of a person, but a persona, a Holy Spirit, we might say, who lives on in us, ideally. And this is what Jesus is, is getting at, I think, in our passage today, when he says, you are gods, period. You are gods. He's saying, you too are Christ's anointed ones, embodiments, incarnations of God's Holy Spirit in the world. Wow. Try wrapping your mind around that. And to some, that will always sound heretical and blasphemous because we're human beings. We you know, got these human bodies and human needs and we got to eat and we got to use the bathroom and we're mortal and we're finite and we don't seem very divine. <laughs> you know, Jesus is saying you are. You are gods. You too are Christ's. You too are the embodiment of God's spirit in the world. How amazing is that? Embodied, 
love and God's divine wisdom in the world. And I know how blasphemous or heretical this sounds to some, just like it did in Jesus' day. If you go around saying this stuff, the, uh, the Orthodox, so-called Orthodox, are going to hold you to account for it. You're going to incur their wrath. They're going to say that's new age bullshit. You know, say, no, this is just ancient wisdom from our spiritual tradition called Christianity that Jesus got from his Judaism. And we find it in a lot of other spiritual traditions and religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, Tao, Taoism. Various shamanic and indigenous religions emphasize this idea of our oneness with all of nature and reality, our inseparability from it. This is just, it's intuitive. We find it across culture and time because it's intuitive for our species, I think, to understand that we are connected to everything and everyone. That's, that's my theory, at least. But again, there's no power trip here. I want to be very clear. When we, when we say we are gods, there's no power trip. There's no exaltation of the ego going on. Rather, quite the opposite. Jesus understood his divinity not as a way of exalting himself, but as a, but as a way of humbling himself to the nth degree. To the nth degree. The Apostle Paul muses on this in Philippians chapter 2, where he writes this, and this actually was believed to be lyrics to a hymn in the, in the ancient church. It's Philippians 2, where Paul marvels, though he was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but he emptied himself. He emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, a nothing, a nobody. And being born in mere human form and, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient, even to the point of death, even death on a cross, which back then was the ultimate form of humiliation and negation. You wanted to completely obliterate somebody, negate somebody, lower somebody, debase somebody. They were crucified, strung up naked on a cross. This was how Jesus understood his divinity and godhood. It wasn't a power trip. It wasn't an ego boost. It, was a way of, it wasn't a way of exalting himself over others. It was the exact opposite. It was a way of emptying himself of all ego and selfish ambition and superiority, wealth and power, etc. Divinity for him was a way of emptying himself of all these things in order to fill himself with love and oneness. Love and oneness for us, for the world, for each other. This was how he understood his divinity and our divinity. This is what he meant when he said things like, the greatest among you, the greatest among you will be the servant of all. 
The least among you, he said, is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's antithetical to the way that we think of power and glory and superiority in the kingdom of God. And Jesus' understanding of divinity and godhood, it's completely upside down. The greatest is the least from the human perspective of things. You want to be fulfilled. You want to know connection with God and others. Empty yourself of ego and selfish ambition and embrace unconditional love for others and the world. Embrace your nothingness. Embrace emptiness, so to speak. Become nothing, and you will become everything. This is mysticism. This is divine wisdom. Let those with ears to hear, hear. Another helpful way of thinking about our divinity, I think, comes from an unlikely source. A very famous, prominent atheist of yesteryear named Sigmund Freud. Freud believed, and rightfully so, that human understandings of God are always projections of ourselves, projections of our egos and our cultures. In other words, the God we believe in is often a personification, an anthropomorphic personification of our deepest fears and desires, our fear of death and suffering, our desire for life and comfort and happiness and fulfillment and well-being. The gods we believe in often are the personification of those desires and the, the thing that promises to fulfill them, right? Our gods are also often projections and personifications of our social hierarchies, our politics, our understandings of power and authority. This is why God is often presented in the Bible, I don't know if you've noticed, as a man with male characteristics and male pronouns. Why is that? Why is God presented this way? Well, it's not hard to figure out because the Bible developed in a patriarchal world, right? A world where people thought that men should be at the top of everything, should run everything, head of the family, head of society, men. And so it makes sense why the, the biblical authors believe God was male. God is also usually described in the scriptures as a king, right? As the monarch, a king, literally, sitting on a throne up there in the heavens and governing the world as a king might rule over his kingdom. Why is that? Why is God presented that way? Well, it's not hard to figure out. You don't need a degree in anthropology. It's because their world was ruled by monarchs and em emperors, kings sitting on thrones, ruling over kingdoms and empires. And that was their conception of power and authority. If the Bible was written today, we might, instead of calling God king of kings and lord of lords, we might say he's president of presidents or he's the CEO of CEOs. That's how we would project our understanding of God. This projection thesis also explains why so many Christians today, evangelicals, think of God as an anti-woke, conservative, pro-gun, patriotic capitalist. 
that's who they are. The fact is the God we believe in often says more about us than it does about God. And Mark Twain probably put it best when he quipped, God made humankind in his image and we've never stopped returning the favor. <laughs> this is the projection thesis. The God we believe in is usually a projection of ourselves, our culture, our society, our worldview, our values, our desires, our fears, etc. Freud was right about that. But he was wrong in the sense that this doesn't prove that there is no higher power and it's just a figment of our imagination. The projection thesis can actually be evidence that there is a higher power. In other words, perhaps the reason why we create gods is because there is something godlike about humanity. Maybe only a god can create a god. Maybe we project the divine because there is something divine about us. Perhaps the best evidence we have for a higher power is our own countless and varied depictions of higher powers. This is similar to a point Jeff Kripal makes, and I'll finish with this today and open it up for a discussion per huge. Jeff Kripal is a religious studies professor that I love. He's from, uh, teaches at Rice University in Houston, Texas. He's, he's a great read. And he's quite the mystic. And he talks about how the reason why we are able to understand so much about the cosmos, scientifically speaking, is because our mind is similar to the nature of the universe itself. He's talking about consciousness. The reason why our consciousness is able to understand so much about the cosmos is because the cosmos is conscious. Now that idea is, is gaining traction today, but reductive materialism is still the dominant worldview in the sciences. What is reductive materialism? Reductive materialism is basically this idea that everything is just stuff. Matter is just cold, dead, mindless stuff that if given billions of years will eventually form itself by, by pure chance alone, mind you, into complex living organisms like us, even organisms that are conscious and aware like us. But to be clear, nothing is going on but mechanical processes, we're told. Organisms are just mechanisms, just machines. We're just fancy clocks that suffer under the delusion of being really alive and conscious and aware. Consciousness, we're told, is just an illusion, just the bizarre byproduct of an advanced brain like ours. That's reductive materialism. And it's losing ground today. It's, it's an idea that's only been around for a few hundred years, and it still dominates the sciences. But it's an idea that's losing ground today to other more plausible explanations for why we exist and why we have the minds that we do and why our science in math, the science and math our minds create, why it comports so well with the intimate details of the cosmos. 
to quote Kripal, the astonishing success of our science and math to model and mirror the most intimate details of the cosmos is the best evidence we have for our own secret nature. Human science works because human nature is cosmic. I love that. Human science works because human nature is cosmic. This is similar to the point I made earlier, that we project gods and create gods because there is something godlike about humanity. For the same reason, it's very likely we understand the cosmos as well as we do because there is something cosmic about humanity. All of this is just different ways of saying the same thing, and that is we are divine. We are cosmic. Or to put it in the way Psalm 82 puts it, which Jesus quotes in our passage today, I say you are gods, children of the Most High, all of you. As we transition now towards Holy Sacrament, Communion, Eucharist, I want us to meditate on this idea. And for me, this timeless Christian tradition. The deeper meaning of this, of course, is that by ingesting these elements, it is a statement of faith for us as Christians that we, we too have become Christ in the world. Here we find his body and blood. Jesus said, take, eat, do this in remembrance of me. This is my body. This is my blood. This is mystical, this idea of union with God and communion with God and communion with each other. It's all about connection, our connection with each other, our devotion to each other in this life and this world and our connection and devotion to the divine. It's all about that mystical connection and our incarnation of God's spirit in the world today. And so we serve each other here. In just a moment, I'm going to pass these elements. They're gluten-free. They're alcohol-free. <laughs> God is gluten here. Gluten-free. Um, but we serve each other. And for those of you who haven't been here before, you take one of the crackers, you dip it in the cup, you receive it, and you serve the person next to you as a demonstration that we are to be Christ to each other and bring Christ to each other. Right? Let's do this now. Each episode of the Central Cast is followed by an interactive discussion. If you'd like to participate in recordings, or if you're interested in exploring progressive faith and theology for a postmodern context, check out centralavenuechurch.org. Here's this week's unedited discussion. Um, I said a lot today. Uh, anybody have anything they want to talk about regarding being divine and Jesus's affirmation? Yeah, Lisa, let me get a mic so people online can hear you. Are you cool with that? There you go. 
I just wanted, I'm Lisa, and I just wanted to share something um, on the lines of how um, magical and uh, I mean, the things that we can't explain that, that connect us to feel God or whatever we call it. Um, I am a hairstylist, but uh, I've always been drawn to meditation and yoga and this and that. And I had a profound experience when someone um, performed Reiki on me. And you know what Reiki is like um, an energy that connects your meridians and chakras and this and that. And my 19-year-old son will say, that's a crock of shit. <laughs> but I'm one that believes that, like you were saying, it's the way that our brains manifest and what we actually allow divinity to work through us in that God presence through us. It's not that we own it, it's that it's part of us. And so I decided to move it into my practice and get certified in it. And because I think we all need healing and connection and blah, 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 blah. So I've just been incorporating it into my business because I wanna find a seed to heal all of us in a connective way rather than the stuff that's crazy out in the world, whether it's racing around as a parent or having a divorce or losing a, a family member, whatever it is, or politics, what it doesn't matter. To find that time to create peace and connection. So I've been incorporating it in my practice and the profound experience of sharing this through this divinity that works through this energy that connects us to to revel in that the 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 experience that people are having where they feel no pain, their anxiety is gone, and and it's kind of connects with the idea that Jesus was a man who was elevated and divine and enlightened, and yet he was still a man, but he connected to that in a higher vibration, which we are all capable of if we connect it, and that's what I'm discovering that. It's not an egocentric thing. It's not even part of one's physical self. It's remembering that we're all connected. We're all divine because we're all part of the same thing. That's lovely. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. Just want to affirm everything you said. I think that was just great. Thank you, Lisa. Other questions, thoughts? Jen. Yeah. Thanks, Lisa, for taking it over there. So when you said the part where you were like, you have to become, what do you say? Like nothing? Or, yeah. 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 I think maybe some, for some people, some people have to do that. But I think thinking of this idea of we are all divine and we are all God way is for, I would think most ex-evangelicals or whatever, becoming something, becoming worthy of love and life and being treated as an equal, you know, because I think there's a lot of, I don't think, freedom in seeing yourself as almost like not an equal to God, but like part of that divine. It gives you worth. Whereas I think, especially for a lot of women, in evangelical culture, you know, you are less than. So that's just my thought. 
Yeah, that's a really good point. And that word nothing can be kind of triggering, right? Yeah, it can be like, um, what, is, what does that mean to become nothing? Because some people already are treated as nothing, right? And that's a good point, yeah. And I was using it um, more in the idea of, yeah, I guess as someone who's treated as something, <laughs> Um, what is it? But I mean, you think of, you know, Jesus being, you know, thought of in the Christian tradition as the exalted holy one on high. And yet he had to essentially become a nothing and a nobody leaving behind ostensibly, you know, mythologically, I guess we might even say the glories and the treasures of heaven and the streets of gold and the golden throne and all of that to be born to a, this peasant family to become a slave, it says, you know, compared become part of the slave class and in so doing in a sense showing us um, what it means to actually embrace this life and the so-called nothings and nobodies and to become one with them because in a way we all are in a sense this is the dialectic of it in a sense we are all nothing and nobody we're here for 70 years 75 80 90 years if we're lucky you know and then we're gone who knows what happens to us right what is life what does it mean sense as, as ecclesiastes remarks in the book of ecclesiastes repeats this refrain everything is nothing everything's full of emptiness and you know so chasing after the wind what is life you know, this pursues futility vanity of vanity it says all is all is vanity not a few things all is vanity it remarks but again there's some kind of serenity in that where one can find a kind of oneness in that nothingness and therefore dialectically becoming a kind of everything, realizing that we're a part, we're cosmological. So it's not like, it's it's paradoxical in a way, I guess I'm saying, but you're right, um, Jen, some might hear that word nothing as being like, well, I'm already treated as nothing, you know, and that's problematic, you're right. Um, Steve, did you want to comment? Yeah. There's a difference between like a political nothingness and like a existential nothingness, I guess I'm saying. Yeah, Steve. I think in some traditions, they would refer to that as like ego death. Say that again? Ego like death. Ego death. Like your ego has to die and for you to sort of experience that oneness. Um, I appreciate a few thoughts. I appreciate you reading from John. I feel like when you talk to Bible people, you can always, or I... I can find where they are by how they think of the book of John, mm -hmm. uh, right? Well, oh, you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, but John's the mystic one. Or like, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, but John's the mystic one. Yeah, yeah that's the interesting stuff. Was, John was always the interesting stuff to me. Um, but it, it, it reminds me that there is no one God of the Bible, but depending on where you're reading in the Bible, you're finding different qualities and traits of God that people are creating out of themselves. Uh, I'm thinking about, you talked about, this isn't an exalted, we are all gods, but, you know, Jesus talks about uh, the first will be last, the last is first, you know, it's kind of an upside down structure, but yet you find places like the end of the book of Job, where God's like, who are you, you know, has that giant ego of, who are you to question me, I'm God, uh, but that's not the God that we seem to see when Jesus is talking in a lot of his stories, like, um, there is no univocal there's no one God of the Bible, but it's people over time figuring out who God is based on who they are, um, which is, I think, why in John we get a different idea of God than we get from Paul or from other people. I don't know. That's just, it's a Bible nerd thing, but it's no, what I'm thinking of. It was a really good observation, right? Bible's not univocal. 
in the way that it presents God is not, no matter what the evangelicals <laughs> say. But uh, yeah, you're right. That's, that's a good point. And John's high Christology, that's the yeah. theological seminary word. He has a very high Christology. Jesus is divine. But interestingly, it's it's not just a high Christology. It's very humanist. It's a high humanism in there. This idea that, no, you're gods too. <laughs> that's just, that is Jesus. Jesus is divine and so are you. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's the crazy thing about John's gospel. Yeah. yeah. One of the crazy things about John's gospel. But good stuff. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Other thoughts, questions, remarks, concerns with all those? Yes. Hi. Yeah. Hey, could you pass the mic? Are you okay using the mic? Wonderful. Um, I know I'm a visitor here, but I, my whole life was brought up within the church and within the scripture unions, within the Bible, with everything. Um, as a teenager, that was my whole life. And then um, I kind of fell away from the church. And about 20 years ago, I found spiritualism. Mm. Now, though that is still part, that's a big part of the Bible, and you, you still believe in Jesus and all that. But to me, I class God as love. To me, he is love, and he's the whole thing. And I find, I found when I got into spiritualism, and I'm now a clairvoyant medium who speaks to the spirit world, and I found, when I found that, I found peace because of the meditation that you do here, I think is amazing. The meditation to me brings your soul back to where it should be, at peace, at calm. And I just find, I mean, this service was totally different from anything I've experienced and I have absolutely loved it. Absolutely loved it. And I could take everything that you were saying about, you know, the Bible and about all that, I can take all that in. Um, but spiritualism to me is just my belief. And I think it's what you get out of a church. It's what you can take out of it that makes the person. Yes. And it's who you are. And I've just found this wonderful today. That was all I wanted to say. Oh, that's lovely. Thank you so much for this. Very encouraging. Thank you very much. I'm so glad that that's how you experienced this today. Um, somebody else? Anybody? they want to say okay good stuff well, let us finish our service as we always do by saying our benediction together as we go from this place we commit ourselves to the path of love honesty and humility we dedicate ourselves as christ did to the cause of justice and the courageous embrace of this life, this world, and each other. Amen. Thank you for being here. Go in peace.